He was the last surviving member of the Twelve Apostles. But rather than being revered and respected, John was imprisoned on a tiny island called Patmos. The other apostles had been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know for sure what happened to all of the apostles. We've we've got some ideas by looking at uh, Jewish and Roman historians. We've got some ideas what happened to the apostles. Uh, The Bible only tells us about two of them, how two died. The Bible tells us, of course, how uh, uh, Judas died. He hung himself. And the Bible then also tells us uh, about James, how he died. James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by Herod in A.D. 44. But we don't know what happened to the other ten apostles as far as we don't have scriptural support for it. However, there are some historical evidences that would point to the fact that probably all the apostles, except the last one, died as martyrs for their faith. I just read you, perhaps, what happened to these men. Peter likely was crucified in Rome, AD 66 AD, during the persecution of Emperor Nero. He was crucified upside down at his request, since he did not feel he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Andrew preached in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and in Greece, uh, where it said that he too was crucified. Doubting Thomas was probably the most active in the area of Syria, uh, and Christians revered him uh, in that area because he also uh, shared his faith not only in Syria, but over all the way into India. They claimed that he died there when he was pierced through with the spears of four soldiers. Philip possibly had a powerful ministry in Carthage of North Africa and then Asia Minor. In retaliation for his ministry there, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly put to death. Matthew, the tax collector and writer of the gospel, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. And some of the oldest reports say that he was not martyred, while others say he was stabbed to death. In Ethiopia. Bartholomew, Bartholomew uh, ministered in various areas beginning in India. And there were various accounts how he met his death as a martyr for the gospel. James the son of Alphaeus is one of, one of at least three James referred to in the New Testament. As some confusion as to what happened to him and, and where he served. But it's believed that, that he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot, as the story goes, ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias was the apostle chosen to replace Judas, and tradition sends him to Assyria with Andrew and to death by burning. More than likely, all the apostles, save the last one, died as a martyr for their faith in Christ Jesus. John, the last apostle, was the one who died of natural causes, more than likely. John had been exiled. Forty-five miles of water separated him from his friends and his followers in Ephesus. Given his circumstances, the sense of his own mortality must have pressed in on him as he was an old man, an aged man, exiled on this island, waiting to die. Now, look at this uh, picture or this map, Patmos is a small island. I can show you where it is. Right there. Patmos was a very small island. And I'm going to show you a picture in just a moment. But I want you to look at this map. A very small island off what is current uh, modern-day Turkey. 
So you can imagine John living on this little tiny island about 45 miles away from Ephesus, about 45 miles away from his friends and his family. Let me show you a picture. It's a small rocky island. Uh, You still go to it today. A small rocky island that is about four miles wide at its widest point, about eight miles long at its longest point. Again, off the coast of modern-day Turkey. Uh, tourists go there today. Uh, I would, as I was lo- doing a little research, I thought that would be a great place to go. That would be an, an incredible tour to take. Tourists go there today, but in John's day, you were sent there to die in isolation. John's day, it was not a tourist location. It was a, it was a prison. It's where you were sent to die. And on that lonely island that you see there, on that very island, on that lonely island, one Sunday morning, John unexpectedly had a visitor. His time of worship, during his time of worship, on the Lord's day, his time of worship was interrupted by a loud voice. And here's how John describes it. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now John did what you and I would have done. He turned around to see who it was that was speaking to him, and when he turned around, what he saw was startling. Look in verse 12. I turned around to see the voice of the one speaking to me, And when I turned, I saw seven golden candlestands, or lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his whole and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Let me ask you quickly, class, who did he see? Jesus. Remember that. Now, verse 19, look what he says in verse 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The aging apostle, that Lord's day, I think, discovered why he was still alive. The aging apostle exiled on the island 
finally was able to perhaps put the pieces of the puzzle together, why every other apostle was, was martyred, why was he still alive? He was still alive to write the last message of Jesus to the world. The last apostle was to write the last message of Jesus to the world. And the series of visions that followed became the book we call Revelation. This book of prophecy has fascinated us and terrified us for centuries. It's led to countless speculations as to how and when this world will end. In the 1970s, a man named Hal Lindsey wrote a book entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody read that book? A few of you have. As a result of that book, interest in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, exploded. And Lindsey followed that book up with one that I bet some of you have read, Countdown to Armageddon. Anybody read that one? A few of you. And then he, he wrote The Terminal Generation. Then he wrote There's a New World Coming. The combined sales of his books of prophecy or books on prophecy was 30 million copies that he sold. New York Times named Lindsay the best-selling author of the decade of 1970s. Then we move into the 1980s and there were TV preachers like Jerry Falwell and Oral Roberts and Pat Robertson and John Hagee. And these men fueled America's interest in Revelation and the last things. At about the same time, books began to be written that actually predicted the actual time and the actual day that Christ would return. I used to have a copy in my office, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come Back in 1988. I promise you, I'd had that. I still have a copy in my office of a book called The Day and Hour When Jesus Will Return. The Day and Hour. I also had a pamphlet that was called, and this was the title, October 28, 1992, Jesus is Coming Again. I don't read that very much anymore now. It just doesn't seem relevant anymore. In the 1990s, our interest in Revelation was fanned into an even brighter flame when the crisis in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf War occurred. You remember that time, there was a flurry of new books about Armageddon, a flurry of new books about end times that began to be printed around that time. Then in the mid-1990s, Tim LaHaye began his Left Behind series. It began as a book, then became a movie series. How many of you have read or watched a Left Behind movie? All right, lots more of you. Now we're in your generation, aren't we? Yeah. Most recently, the Harbinger book has been uh, quite a bestseller. In fact, it was the best-selling Christian book in America in 2012. Now, I'm going to say a whole lot about that. Some of you have asked me about the Harbinger. The only thing I'll say is two things. Number one, I haven't read it. I have not read it. Number two, I don't want to read it. Uh, I have read about it, and I've done some research on it, a little bit of research. I agree with Dr. Jim Ekman. He said that uh, he believes that the message of the Harbinger is correct, that is calling America back to repentance. But it probably and more likely has faulty and maybe even dangerous exegesis of Scripture. It seems to me what I've read so far, and again, I'll say I haven't read it. What I've read so far seems to be more his imagination than interpretation of Scripture. And I would just caution you to make sure that what you're reading is is interpretation of Scripture. But, But the reason for talking about that book is because it's just another example of the interest we have in Revelation. The interest that we have in the end times. The interest we have in... What's going to happen at the end of this world? And even this past month, I don't know if you, if you followed this. Even in this past month, in the month of September, 
there was great speculation that the world was going to come to an end. Uh, did you follow that? Did you see that? It, it, I didn't, honestly, I wasn't really aware of that much until Lisa started calling my attention to it because she kind of got a little nervous. And she said, well, I need to talk to you about what's going to happen in September. I said, well, babe, what are you talking about? What is going to happen in September? Well, uh, people are saying the world's going to end. I said, what? And so she had to fill me in a little bit. Uh, part of it is due to the fact that we had a blood moon in September, and it was the fourth blood moon in a row called a tetrod. I'm not a, uh, an expert on that by any means, but the last one that we had was this past September 28th, and four blood moons, now this, this is historical, four blood moons in a row usually was connected to something that God was about to do with his people. So we've had four blood moons, which is unusual, and it's an unusual occurrence in the heavens. So it makes people begin to wonder, is God about to do something? Is he giving us some type of physical sign that he's about to do something? Also in September, there was speculation about a meteor hitting the earth. If you do, rec- if you do any kind of uh, study about that, you'll just see all kinds of crazy stuff on that. Uh, the, the one I saw that, that fascinated me was that there were aliens riding a, me- a meteor. And, and they, they picked up singing on the meteor. And, and they think that there's buildings on the meteor. And this is going to hit earth in September. Uh, the reason I bring that up is just to let you know how silly some of this stuff can get. And ladies and gentlemen, I just want to say again and again, you need to make sure that what you believe is rooted in Scripture. But let me tell you some other things that were supposed to happen in September, and then we'll move on. There was supposedly a major economic collapse that was predicted for September. Uh, the Pope came to America in September. He addressed the United Nations in September. Uh, the French, and I saw that, I, I didn't believe this until I saw it. I saw it. I watched the video. The French prime minister predicted last year that there were only 500 days left to avoid climate chaos, what he called climate chaos. He said, we've only got 500 days to prepare for climate chaos. And John Kerry was standing right beside him when he said it. This is not theory. I saw the video of where the prime minister said, we've only got 500 days to get the world in order and there will be climate chaos And he said that that would begin, guess when? September 2015. So all of that was supposed to come together in in September. Had lots of people worried and nervous and lots of people talking, lots of blogs and lots of stuff on the internet. Uh, my, My response to that would simply be this, it's October. Here's my point. Every generation wonders if it will be the last. Are we rushing, here's the question, are we rushing towards Armageddon? Is the end near or are we just simply in another nervous cycle like we were in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s? I've told you previously that I believe that the Lord Jesus could come back in my lifetime. I still believe that. But, what we experience in society is not necessarily what the Bible is predicting. And we sometimes get nervous uh, over meteors with aliens on them. Uh, and I would caution us against that. So, there's, I'll just simply say this. A lot of these questions about when the world is going to come to an end and are we heading towards Armageddon, sometimes there's not easy answers to these questions. But there are three things that we can say with certainty. 
And I believe you could probably amen these, not that you have to, but there's three things that we can say, I believe, with certainty. Number one, this world is going to come to a cataclysmic end. That's absolutely certain. That the, God's Word teaches that this world is going to come to a cataclysmic end. Number two, God is in control of everything. God is not playing like He's sovereign. God is sovereign. He's in absolute control. Number three, we need to be ready as if Jesus were coming back tonight. You don't need to, to get ready between now and the next ten years. We need to be ready. So, the book of Revelation was written so that you and I would know what to expect, how to get ready, and what we need to be doing in the meantime. So, let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 1 and start with verse 1. Tonight, we'll focus on verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because, read those last words with me, because the time is near. Let me talk to you about understanding the basics of the book of Revelation, and in large part, what we're doing tonight is just an introduction, really, to the study of Revelation, but understanding some of the basics of the book of Revelation. First of all, the book gets its name from the opening words found in the very first verse. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means literally unveiling. And if you would look up here for a moment, if, if I had something, I started to do this, but I, I decided against it. But if I had something under here, and you didn't know what it was, and throughout the night I kept referring to whatever was under here, but you didn't know what it was. But if I said, now, there's going to come a time when I will show it to you. There's going to come a time when I will unveil it. Now, you wouldn't know what it was until that time when I unveiled it. I want you to think in Revelation in those terms. The word revelation literally means unveiling. In Revelation, God lifts the veil and reveals things about the future known only to Him. Think about that. Here's what the book is about. God is lifting the veil and revealing things about the future known only to Him. Now, we get our English word apocalypse from that same word. Unfortunately, today, what does apocalypse imply? What do you think of when you hear the word apocalypse? What's it associated with? Doom? Destruction? Yes. My, my son, uh, and I love him to death, but, but he's, he's at North Greenville, and, and he's, well, he's actually here tonight, but, but he's a student at North Greenville, and He's doing a, a video for his class, and it's a post-apocalyptic video. That's just very, very uh, uh, popular in today's time. The, everybody's speculating, you know, there's going to come a time when we're going to kind of ruin everything, and we're going to live in this post-apocalyptic world where everything is, is different, and everything is barren, and everything, every, you're, you're, you're fighting over water and gas and all kinds of things, and Unfortunately, the word apocalypse to us means doom and gloom 
and chaos and catastrophe. But the word literally means unveiling, revelation. In fact, if you were to look at a thesaurus, you'll see that the word revelation and the word apocalypse are synonyms. So it means simply to, to unveil what is about to happen in the future. Now, Revelation is the only apocalyptic literature in the New Testament. We don't have any other apocalyptic literature in the New Testament. We do have some apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. Uh, parts of Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah would be classified as apocalyptic literature. Uh, so Revelation is the unveiling of this book. Uh, God pulls back the curtain, gives us the privilege of seeing what His service, uh, sovereign purposes will bring about at the end of the world. So, let me talk to you about the human author of the book. The human author is named for us. Uh, who is the human author of this book, according to verse 1? John, and, and do you know which John it is? I've alluded to it. Do you know which John it is? John, who is the apostle of Jesus Christ, one of the twelve. Now, the Holy Spirit used John to give us three kinds of literature. John wrote three different kinds of literature in the New Testament. Help me with that. What are the three kinds of literature he wrote? What's the first one? The gospel. He wrote the gospel, the story of Jesus. That's the first type of literature. Second type of literature he wrote is what? Epistles or letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the third type of literature that he wrote is what we would call apocalyptic literature or the book of Revelation. John had outlived, as I said a moment ago, he had outlived all the other apostles. He was looked upon as the spiritual leader of the churches. And since he was the last of the apostles, it makes this unique revelation a fitting closing to the entire Bible. The last apostle writing the last book about God's revelation to mankind. Now I want you to notice that God is careful to tell us how this information was conveyed to John. This is significant. How was this information we're going to be studying over the next uh, several months, how was this information communicated to John? Look at verse 1 and 2 and just read it to yourself and try to figure out what was the chain. Look at that and read it. All right. How, what was the chain? What, what started the chain? God. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him. Who's him? Jesus. To show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything that he saw. So here was the process. God, Jesus, the angel to John to us. The implication is this, and don't miss this. The implication is the things you are about to read did not come from John's imagination. The things you're about to read were not simply from the hand or the mind of John. But the things that you are about to read came from God himself. These are not the musings of man. This was look up here. This, these are not the musings of man. This is the unveiling. God of the things to come. So, let's try to dig in a little deeper. John wrote Revelation about 95 AD during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian. He was probably familiar with 
uh, Nero. He had heard about Nero, and you perhaps are familiar with Nero. Nero was known for his persecution of Christians, but, but the emperor after Nero was the one that was very, very cruel to, to Christians. John was that uh, in that uh, time frame, living in that time frame. Look at the map again up here for a moment. Look at Patmos there. I showed you where it was. Look at Patmos. And just think about you being sent to this island. And you're, you're sent there basically to die. It was a Roman penal colony off the coast of, of Asia. And now you're sent there to die. Just think of how lonely and how difficult that time would be. And that was the place. And that was the time that God spoke to John and unveiled something about the future. Let's go quickly to number two. What kind of book is Revelation? Uh, First of all, it is a difficult book. If you've ever read Revelation, you probably would agree with that, would you not? It is a difficult book. We need to state the obvious. There are three schools of interpretation. I'm not going to get into this in detail now. We may talk about it more later. There are three different ways to interpret Revelation, especially when you're talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, One is amillennialism. That means that there is no literal thousand-year reign of Christ, that He presently is reigning through the church. Postmillennialism, that Christ will return after the thousand-year reign uh, and after the world has been evangelized. Postmillennialism basically says the world is getting better and better, and and once the world is evangelized, Christ will come back. Premillennialism says that the second coming will occur before a literal thousand-year reign of Christ from Jerusalem upon the earth. And, and it also can be divided into historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Uh, and if those terms don't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. We'll talk about them a little bit more later on. But I just want to let you to know, this is a difficult book, ladies and gentlemen. This is not something you can read like the Gospel of Matthew and say, I get it. Parts of it you can read that way and say, I get it. But parts of it, when you read it, it's like, what does that mean? And is, is he talking about now or later? And is he talking about this group or that group? And, and, and we'll talk about why it's so difficult in just a moment. But it is a very difficult book. And you need, when you read it, you need to understand that when you're reading through the book of Revelation, you need the Holy Spirit's insight. Now, that's true for all Scripture, but it's especially true in Revelation. What kind of book is Revelation? It's a difficult book. Secondly, it is a Christ-centered book. It tells us that at the very first sentence. The revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ. This is not a revelation of, of just future events. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the main focus of the book. The book is about His greatness. The book is about His glory. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, it's, and by the way, let me get down here and talk to you. It's not revelations with an S on the end. It's revelation. Because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of who He is. And in fact, let me uh, look at the, in chapter 1. Chapter 1, Jesus is the risen priest and king. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus examining the seven churches. In chapters 4 and 5, he receives the title deed to all creation. Chapters 6 through 19, he judges the world and returns in glory. Chapter 20 through 22, he reigns in glory and power. This is primarily a book about Jesus and how he's going to bring the world to an end. Number three, this is also a prophetic book. Look in chapter 1, 
Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this what? This prophecy. The book tells us what it is. It's prophetic. Look in chapter 22. I said a moment ago there's 21 chapters. There's 22 chapters. Chapter 22, verse 18. I want everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to it, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. So this is a very prophetic book. Uh, John was told in Revelation 22.10 not to seal the book because the whole world needs the words of this prophecy. Next, this is a book that is filled with symbols and numbers. Somebody give me an example. What is a symbol? Help me with this. What is a symbol? A symbol is what? Represents. Represents something. One of the reasons that this is a difficult book is because Sometimes things are not explained in here. They are symbols, and sometimes they are not explained. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven gold candlesticks is this. The seven stars, which are a symbol are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in this case, the symbol is explained. But in some cases, it is not. Therefore, it is difficult sometimes to understand. Symbols have a way of communicating, though, a tremendous truth. Symbols have a way of communicating a deeper truth. We refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. Question, is Jesus really a lamb? No, he's, the, he's a, it's a symbol. He's the Lamb of God. We refer to Jesus as the Bride of Christ. Is Jesus a bride? No, it's a symbol. A symbol to to communicate to us a deeper spiritual truth. Symbols are are a reality, or speaking of a reality, but they're not literal. Um, It's also a book of symbolic numbers. Look on the screen. You might want to write these down somewhere in that column. You'll see symbolic numbers throughout the book of Revelation. For example, the number three is the divine number. It's the The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. There's three in the Trinity. Three represents the divine number. Four represents the world or the earth. Uh, Have you ever heard of the four corners of the world? Four corners of the earth. Uh, Seven is the complete or perfect number. It's the sacred number plus the world number. You put the two together and you get the complete or perfect number. Seven is the number that represents God. God is complete. He is perfect. Six is the sinister or evil number. It's falling short of seven, right? Six falls short of seven. It's less than seven. So six always represents the evil number. Therefore, when you get to the number six, 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 you're talking about a number that represents something that is tremendously evil. Like there are three in the Trinity. The divine number is three. When there's three sixes, that's showing it's the opposite of God and it is completely sinister and evil. Three and a half represents incompleteness or imperfection. It's half of the perfect number, seven. And twelve is God's redeemed company or God's redeemed people. Have you ever noticed there was twelve tribes? There were twelve apostles. Twelve always represents God's redeemed company or God's redeemed people. These are some of the numbers we will be seeing over the next few months in the book of Revelation. And so it's a very symbolic book. E on your notes. Also, it is a universal book. 
John saw nations and people and masses of humanity as a part of God's program. Look in Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Look in chapter 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within His temple was seen the ark of His covenant, and there came flashes of lightning. Uh, That's not the right verse. What is it? Nine. I'm sorry. Thank you. Nine. Um, for three and a half days, men from every tribe, every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on the bodies and refuse them burial. And in another place, it says that every people, tribe, and nation gathers around the throne. I'm simply wanting you to understand something about this book. This is a universal book. This is a book that applies to the entire world. This is a book that explains what will happen to the entire world. This is a book that is worldwide in its scope. It is a universal book. F on your outline. It also is a book with a blessing. It says in chapter 1, verse 3, whoever reads this book, whoever follows the prophecy of this book, will experience a blessing. And notice how it ends in chapter 22, verse 7. Chapter 22, verse 7 says this, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed or blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. This is a book with a blessing. And finally, G on your outline, it is also a book, uh, Revelation is the climax of the Bible. It's the absolute climax of the Bible. It shows the fulfillment of God's purpose and plan. And, and Revelation is the last chapter in the story of God's redemption of the world. It's the very last chapter. It's the climax to everything that God did. Uh, let, let me show you what happened in as you compare it the first book of the Bible, to the last book of the Bible, I think you'll see why I say it is a climax. When you compare Genesis to Revelation, it's evident that this book, Revelation, is the climax of the entire Bible. Let's go through, uh, there's four or five of these. Look at this. In Genesis, Genesis reveals the Lord and His creation at the beginning of time. Genesis is that book of origins, that book of beginnings. It reveals the Lord's Uh, reveals the Lord and His creation at the beginning of time. Revelation reveals how the Lord will deal with His creation at the end of time. Genesis tells us what what He did to start it. Revelation tells us how He's going to end it. Look at this one. This next one. Genesis reveals the loss of paradise. And of course, in Revelation, it reveals how paradise will be regained. A new heaven and a new earth. Why do we need a new heaven? And a new earth because of what happened in Genesis to his creation. And we'll get into all of that later on. The next one. Genesis, in Genesis, Satan is introduced in this book. When you open the Bible, you come to Genesis chapter 3. And Satan is introduced in this book we call Genesis. He, he's there at the very first of the Bible. In Revelation, Satan makes his final exit for all time in this book. Isn't that good? Aren't you glad there's an end for him? So in Revelation, it tells us what happens to the one that we encounter in Genesis chapter 3. All right, the next one. Genesis tells us how sorrow and sin and death entered the world. Again, 
uh, Genesis 2 and 3 explain to us, here's what happened. Here's the reason there is sorrow in the world. Here's the reason there is sin in the world. Here's the reason there is death in the world. We learn all of that from Genesis. Look what we see in Revelation. In Revelation, it tells us how sorrow, sin, and death will be done away with. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye. And there'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more death. We learn that in Revelation. Is there another one? In Genesis, it tells us how life began. Here's how life began. God, Creator, Elohim, Creator, Jehovah, Creator, God, All-Powerful, created man and woman. And then in Revelation, it tells us what will happen when this life is over. Revelation tells us that there's something beyond this life. Everybody look up here again. Revelation says you need to understand. God wants to unveil something to you. When this life is over, that's not the end. And Revelation, more than any other book, unveils what's going to happen when this life is over. Not just just what's going to happen to our world. He does explain that. Well, what's going to happen to us when this life is over? And so, um, let's talk quickly. Well, let me, it is a book of ultimate victory. Let me tell you about this. You won't have time to write all of this down, but I just want you to understand that Revelation is a book of ultimate victory. You see, ever since Satan entered the world, Satan has always tried to have a counter move to whatever God did. Have you ever noticed this in Scripture? Creation of the earth and man. God created the earth. God created man. So Satan, with his counter move, came to tempt the man that God had created. In the period of the judges, faithless people who turned from God, there was was a period of time where God was working in the lives of these people in a very real way, and the people were turning away from God in this period of judges, in the period of the kings. God gave them a king. God was working in that that, uh, group of people. He gave them a king. He he had a God-chosen king, and, and that period of time ended with a divided kingdom. David is an example, a man after God's own heart, God's chosen king, and yet Satan tempted him with Bathsheba. The birth of Jesus, of course, a great uh, time in in the history of the world when the Savior was born, and Satan in his counter move had all the male babies killed in that area who were two years of age and younger. The beginning ministry of Jesus, he was starting to launch his ministry, Satan in his counter move, came to attempt him for 40 days and 40 nights, try to distract him and deter him from what he was trying to do. Of course, the cross and the resurrection. After the resurrection, he, I mean, he resurrected from the dead, and yet what was the story? Somebody stole his body in a counter move. Satan tried to explain this miracle by saying somebody stole his body. And the birth of the New Testament church, the birth of the church exploded in the book of, in the book of Acts. And, and what was Satan's counter move? Persecution of the church. Persecution of the church. So here's what I want you to see. For every move that God makes, Satan over the years has had a counter move. But Revelation shows us that God will have the last move. God's going to have the last move. So how do we study Revelation? Here's how you study it. You study it by following Revelation 1.9 because the book really follows this verse. Revelation 1.19, look what it says. Write, therefore, what you have seen, 
Number two, what is now? And number three, what will take place later? What you have seen corresponds with chapter one of Revelation, John's vision of the glorified Christ. What is now corresponds to chapters two and three, the message of the seven churches of Asia. And what will take place later, chapters four through 22, deal with all of those things we think about when we think about the second coming and and the end of times, the rapture of the church, the rise of the Antichrist, the tribulation for seven years, the battle of Armageddon, second coming, millennial kingdom, new heavens and new earth, all that are are in chapters 4 through 22. So if you want to study the book of Revelation, you can study it with that outline. Chapter 1, what you have seen, what he saw in the glorified Christ. Chapters 2 through 2 and 3, what is now, his letters to the seven churches. And chapters 4 through 22, what will take place later. Finally, there's, there's one other way that you can study this book, and I would encourage you to write this one down. There's one other way you can study this book. There's three main divisions that will help you study this book. Part one is called the church age, chapters one through three, the church age. We are now living in the church age, chapters one through three. That's the first part of the book. The second part of the book is called From the Rapture to the Second Coming. The second part of the book describes that period of time from the rapture to the second coming, and that's chapters 4 through 19. And part 3 is the millennium and beyond. That's chapters 20 through 22, the millennium and beyond. Now, here's what you need to do. You need to just get into Revelation chapter 1 this week. And next Sunday night, we're going to dig in. And, and we've, I've tried to give you lots of information tonight. I understand that. But we're going to dig into chapter 1 next week. And we're going to start trying to, as best we can to understand God's Word and what, it's, what it says in chapter 1. Here's what I'd encourage you to do. I'd get into chapter 1, and I would, I would write down questions that I have. As you're reading it, just write down questions that you have. And as you're reading it, write down what, what is that one central idea that I want to, to take out of this? What's that one central idea that, that can help me this week? So if you'll do those two things as you read chapter 1 of Revelation, and you more than likely are going to need to read chapter 1 more than one time. You might even want to read it one time every day as part of your quiet time discipline. Maybe each day you're reading chapter 1 and you're writing down questions that you have and you're writing down, what's that one thing I need to take from this that perhaps I could apply in, in my life? And then if you want to bring your list, that's fine. And we'll dig into chapter 1 next week and start taking off and trying to understand this incredible, incredible book that is an unveiling of the things to come. I'll try to give you more time to talk next time, maybe to ask some questions and participate. Would you join me as I pray? Father, I pray now that as we look at Revelation chapter 1 this next week, as we begin to read, as we begin to study, as we begin to try to comprehend, may your Spirit give us insight. May you show us that one thing that we might take from it, that one thing we might glean from it, that one thing we might actually apply to our lives. And Father, may your Spirit be the one It helps us understand the things to come. Thank you that you have not 
made it a secret, but you are unveiling it to us. And I pray for insight that comes from you. In Christ's name, amen.